Okay, we will continue now with our discuss our discussion of the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the foundations of mindfulness. And now <coughs> we come to the third foundation of mindfulness, <coughs> which is called Chitanopasana, the contemplation of mind, or the contemplation of consciousness. In the Whale Booklet, this is page 18. Okay, in order to understand this section properly, we have to give a little background explanation on the nature of consciousness according to the Buddha's teaching. According to the Buddha's teaching, what we call mind or consciousness is not a single persisting entity which maintains its identity through the changes of experience. <coughs> Rather, consciousness is a succession, a continuum of momentary acts of consciousness. Each act of consciousness is just <clears throat> a single event which endures very, very briefly. And in that event, mind or consciousness performs a function of knowing an object. The word which is used for mind or consciousness is the word chitta. Chitta always occurs together with a collection of mental factors which are called chaitasikas. The word chaitasika comes from the, from the same root as chitta. The chaitasika is the primary act of consciousness which has the function of knowing an object and the chaitasikas are the cluster of associated mental factors that perform special tasks in that entire process or act of knowing an object. 
Some of the main chaitasikas will be, for example, feeling, vedana. By reason of feeling, the chitta, the mind or consciousness, is able to experience the, say, the effective quality of the object, whether the object is pleasurable or painful. Another associated mental factor, chaitasika, is perception. By reason of perception or sanya, the mind is able to note or identify the particular qualities of an object. Another chaitasika is volition or chaitana by reason of which the mind exercises a particular volition or activity in regard to that object. So chitta, whenever it occurs, there's one chitta occurring but any chitta might have a retinue, an entourage of about anything from 10 to 38 accompanying chaitasikas. And from the standpoint of mental development, the most important chaitasikas are those which distinguish a chitta, an act of consciousness, as being wholesome, kusala, that is morally praiseworthy, a purifying state of consciousness, and those chaitasikas which make a chitta an act of consciousness unwholesome that is morally blameworthy or which tend to cloud the mind and to bring the mind downward to lower states. So we have this most important distinction in chitas and chaitasikas, well let's say in the chitta between the unwholesome and the wholesome. Okay, so we have this first, this primary distinction in the chitta or consciousness into the wholesome and the unwholesome. And what makes a state of consciousness either wholesome or unwholesome are certain chaitasikas with which it will be associated. Chitta, mind or consciousness itself, is taken in itself is just the pure act of experiencing an object. 
Sita is like a clear light which illuminates an object. But the Sita takes on the quality, the ethical quality, which is given it, given to it by the Chaitasikas, the mental factors in connection with which it arises. Those Chaitasikas which make the Sita unwholesome or impure are called the defilements, the chilesas. And the primary defilements are the three unwholesome roots, which are greed or lust, loba or raga in Pali, then hatred or aversion, that's dosa, and delusion or ignorance, moha. Those are the main roots of the unwholesome, but in connection with these, there also arise many other unwholesome mental states. That's why I put the etc. there. For example, pride or conceit, um, jealousy, selfishness, The simile of the cloth that we studied last year gives a list of 16 minor defilements. Okay, and then on the opposite side, the factors which make the consciousness pure are the states which are called well, actually, there's <laughs> no single name for them. Maybe we could just call them the kusala chaitasikas, the wholesome mental factors. And these are all rooted in the three good roots, which are expressed negatively, non-greed, which comes to manifestation as generosity or non-attachment non-hatred, which is manifest as loving-kindness, sympathy, compassion, and non-delusion, which is wisdom or understanding. Then connected with these three good roots, there are many other purifying mental factors. In the Abhidhamma, some 25 good chaitasikas are mentioned. Okay, now, when one tries to identify a chitta, a state of consciousness, one always has to do it to do so in terms of the 
chaitasikas with which it's connected. The chaita in itself is just knowing of an object. So in that respect, every chaita is the same. But because of the associated mental factors, some chaitas, if we allow them to go through the mind and to gather momentum by repetition, then they build up an unwholesome force which causes the deterioration of our character, which leads to unwholesome karma, karma that will bring painful results, and these states of consciousness will become obstructions to the attainment of liberation. On the other hand, those chitas which are of a good, wholesome character, those chitas, if they are repeatedly developed and built up, will gather a momentum, a force of purification. When they are repeatedly developed, they will purify the mind, they will lead to the creation of good, wholesome karmas which will bring beneficial results in the future. And these chitas, when their force is combined, will enable us to reach the path to liberation. They will eventually come to their peak in the attainment of the super-mundane path, the path of stream entry, once-returner, and so on. So in the development of the mind that one undertakes in the practice of satipatthana, the first important task to be undertaken is to identify the type of consciousness that has arisen. If we are not able to identify the states of consciousness, then the unwholesome consciousnesses, they're sort of like thieves. <laughs> they work best in the dark. <laughs> Like, usually thieves don't commit robberies in broad daylight, but they like it when the hours between midnight and three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning, when everybody is asleep and there's darkness, and maybe even the police are not very diligent in patrolling the streets, then the robbers can go to town. In the same way, these unwholesome chitas, when they're not recognized and identified, then they just go on, like taking opening one drawer, taking the cash out of that drawer, throwing it into the bag, opening another drawer, 
seeing there's a box of jewelry there, they take the jewels, put it into the bag. Another drawer, they will find the maybe valuable family treasures, put that into the bag. So when they're not seen and identified, then they'll just go running through the mind, one after another, engaging in all sorts of unwholesome thoughts, and in that way they'll accumulate strength. But if one has, say, a well-lit street, and people are keep their doors locked, and there is a patrol car coming down the street every half hour, ready to investigate any suspicious people on the street, then the robbers won't be very active in working. They won't have an opportunity. So in the same way, if we are able to identify what states of mind arise, then just that identification will act as an obstruction to the defiled mental state. Even if a defiled state arises from time to time, if one is watching the mind and one identifies what has arisen, then it will be somewhat like a thief who's coming to, say, a department store and he's looking around <laughs> and he sees that there are these mirrors in the corners and he sees an employee of the shop standing in one corner looking in, in the mirrors that's in all the four corners of the shop. So even though the thief might have the thought of stealing, when he sees that the shop is being surveyed, then he won't be able to steal anything. So if one is watching the mind and identifying what comes up, then unwholesome states will arise, but they will not be able to persist long. As soon as they're identified, then it's somewhat like the thief who's about to reach out his hand to take something. Then when he sees that he's being watched, he just pretends that he's a customer, just interested in buying something. Okay, so that is the background explanation of why the Buddha includes the contemplation of consciousness within the framework of Satipatthana meditation. And also this gives the theoretical explanation of what is consciousness and how do we go about identifying the state of consciousness. Now we'll take the passage from the Sutta, which I'll read out loud, then give additional explanation. Okay, the Buddha opens the section, as usual, with the question, 
And how much does a monk living live contemplating consciousness in consciousness? Chite Chitanupati Viharati. And here the Buddha says contemplating consciousness in consciousness in order to indicate that when one practices this contemplation one has to focus exclusively on the consciousness not mixing up the consciousness with any of the other objects of mindfulness and not identifying consciousness as myself, what I am, my personality, but just seeing it as an impersonal process, a series of states of consciousness which arise and pass away. Okay, then answering the question, the Buddha says, Herein, monk, a monk knows the consciousness with lust as with lust. The consciousness without lust as without lust. The consciousness with hate as with hate the consciousness without hate as without hate the consciousness with ignorance as with ignorance and the consciousness without ignorance as without ignorance okay in this passage coming so far in the sutta, the Buddha has given the initial classification of consciousness in terms of the those pieces which are associated with one or another of the unwholesome roots and the states of consciousness which are dissociated from the unwholesome roots, which are void of the unwholesome roots. Then he continues by showing other contrasting states of consciousness. He says the, he knows the shrunken state of consciousness as the shrunken state of consciousness. And he knows the distracted state of consciousness as the distracted state of consciousness. This is a contrast between two types of, or two states of consciousness which are both unwholesome but in different ways. What is called the shrunken state of consciousness in Pali, 
Tan Titan Titan. The, the distracted state is called Vititan Titan. Both have this root Titan, which means throne, literally throne. Tan Titan is, you could say, throne together. It's a consciousness which is collapsing on itself. And this is a state of consciousness which is overcome by dullness, drowsiness, or unworkability. It's like a rigid or unmalleable type of consciousness. Especially when the mind is either somewhat dull and unclear or drowsy or when the mind just can't be energized in order to do the work of meditation. The opposite of that, the Vikitang Kitang is a consciousness which is thrown in different directions. That is a state of consciousness which is overcome by restlessness or agitation. This is when the mind is just running so quickly and in different directions. First one thought will come in, then another thought, and the mind just becomes scattered. Okay, so then the next pair is the developed state of consciousness. As the developed state of consciousness and the undeveloped state of consciousness as an undeveloped state of consciousness. Yeah, the commentary explains this. The developed state, actually the Pali word mahagatang, maybe it could be better translated as an exalted or elevated state of consciousness. And the other as the non-exalted or non-elevated state of consciousness. We can understand the exalted state of consciousness as a consciousness which has obtained a high level of absorption, of clarity, of precision, of depth. And the unexalted consciousness as any other consciousness which has not yet reached that level of power and of concentration. The following terms are more or less synonymous with it, though the commentary <laughs> introduces subtle distinctions, which I don't think we have to go into here. <coughs> okay, so we have a state of consciousness 
with something superior to it. This is an unexalted, virtually the same as an unexalted state of consciousness. And a state of consciousness with no other mental state superior to it. He knows that as such. Then the concentrated state of consciousness he knows is concentrated. The unconcentrated state of consciousness is unconcentrated. The freed or liberated state of consciousness as liberated. And the unfreed or unliberated state of consciousness as unfreed. According to the commentary, this last distinction of freed and unfreed doesn't mean the consciousness of an arahant as the freed state versus, versus any other state as an unfreed state, but rather a state of mind which is temporarily freed from an influx of defilement that is a liberated or freed state. Whereas a state of mind which is overrun by defilement will be an unfreed state. <coughs> okay, so that is the basic explanation of the term. And I think the most important of these distinctions to attend to at the outset are the first three pairs knowing the state of mind with lust or greed as with lust or greed and knowing the state of mind which is without lust or greed as such Similarly, knowing the state of mind with hatred as with hatred, knowing the mind without hatred as without hatred, knowing the mind with ignorance as with ignorance, and knowing the mind without ignorance as without ignorance. And now, as to the practical way in which the contemplation of mind is undertaken and somewhat in a similar manner to the way I explained last week in the case of the contemplation of feelings there are two main ways in which one takes up the contemplation of consciousness first As a regular practice, at the outset, one starts off usually with an object of meditation pertaining to the body, since the physical object is grosser than a mental object, and so it's easier to observe, and so most Meditation teachers will prescribe anapanasati, the mindfulness of breathing, or in the Burmese method of 
satipatthana, observance of the rise and fall of the abdomen. And so one will have the main objects of observation with physical objects. One will be attending to the touch sensation of the breath as it goes in and out, or the sensation, the physical sensation of the abdomen stretching and constricting as the abdomen is rising and falling. And one will go on noting in, out, in, out, or rise, fall, rise, fall. But then as one goes on with this physical contemplation, from time to time, one will notice that the mind is straying. At the beginning, when the mind is straying, one will simply be noting wandering minds, wandering minds, one just notes it once or twice, then brings the mind back to the object of attention. When one is noting wandering minds, which of these 16 types of consciousness is being identified here? Distracted, the distracted mind. So if the mind is just wandering with thoughts, one can just make this mental note, wandering mind, wandering mind, distracted mind, distracted mind, then bring the mind back to the main object, the breath or the abdomen. But then there will be times as one goes on with this practice, especially if one is doing intensively, where one wants to identify more precisely what kind of mind has been arising when the mind is wandering. Usually, if one observes the mind when it wanders, one will see that it's doing one or a number of things Sometimes it's planning, <laughs> planning the future. Any time from what one is going to do as soon as one gets out of the sitting <laughs> to something that one is going to do after one retires <laughs> or <laughs> at some distant future date. But there's some activity of imagining and planning what will take place in the future. Generally, this state of mind can be identified as if one is going to connect it to the scheme of contemplation. What are these plans and projects usually rooted in.
เดียวยูสวีอิตวุฒิวัตคอมลัสเฮียบัตอัคเลียอินคลูดส์ดีไซร์ในทุกประเภทของมันดังนั้นเมื่อจิตใจคิดและคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดคิดA period deliberately for working out plans, then one can be planning with, you know, intelligence and with foresight, and with a rational consideration of what has to be done. But when your mind is supposed to be following the breath or the movement of the abdomen, and it's thinking of what one is going to make for dinner or what. One is going to what kind of music one is going to enjoy, or what one, where one will go on vacation, or what one will do three years from now, five years, ten years from now. Then it's generally something rooted in desire. Then the mind, instead of planning, it can be. Imagining, imagining things that it would like to happen. This is also a thought directed to the future, and usually these imaginings are based on what? Excuse me. Well. Delusion is always there, but something else usually underlies more strongly these imaginings. Excuse me. It's desire, right? Usually, the imaginings for the future are based on or grounded upon desire. One is imagining what one would like to happen. Maybe. One imagines if one is working, getting called up to the boss's office and being given an award or a raise, a promotion. One imagines maybe winning a lottery. Then from there, one starts imagining after one wins the lottery, what one will do with all of the money that one gets from winning the lottery, and so on. Just thought. Begins building up upon thought until one is constructing a whole mental world in the future. There is one story which is told in the. I think it's in the commentary to the Dhammapada to illustrate the way the, mi- the mind, in its imaginings, builds up thought upon thought upon thought. A story is told about a novice monk who had been ordained under some senior monk who was a relation of his, and that novice monk. Had been given a robe, 
by some supporters. And he wanted to give that robe to his preceptor. And he offered the robe to his preceptor, but his preceptor told him, don't bother, I have enough robes. Because of this, the novice monk was very upset. And later that same day, he was upset and angry. He was fanning his uncle, the preceptor, and while he was fanning him, the thought came back to his mind that he offered this robe to his teacher, and his teacher refused it, and he thought, Therefore, I think I'm going to disrobe and leave the monastery. And he thought, if I disrobe, now what will happen? Ah, I will go to the village, then back to my family, then I will meet a nice girl, I will court her for some time, then we will get married. Then he thinks, once we get married, then we will have children then when we have children those children when they get older they will become very mischievous and he's imagining one boy is playing very loudly and then i'll have to go out into the playground and call that boy to me and take him onto my lap and give him a slapping and just at that moment, with the fan with which he was fanning his teacher, he hit his teacher over the head. <laughs> okay, so that is the way the mind wanders from its object. Okay, so that's through the force of imagining. So in regard to the future, we have imagining and planning, some other states that occur, sometimes hoping. That is also a state usually rooted in desire. So if the mind wanders, sometimes planning, sometimes imagining what one wants, sometimes hoping for what one wants. One identifies this is a thought or a mind rooted in desire. Also, the mind goes not only into the future, but also it wanders into the past. Sometimes it will remember pleasant and enjoyable experiences in the past. This also is a state rooted in desire, even though it's something that happened in the past, but it brings a pleasant memory and there takes place a clinging to that memory. So there's some clinging or attachment in that state of mind. Any other states of mind that go back into the past, 
of course in the past they're always rooted in they're always a form of memory yeah now this is also good that's good another type of mind that goes back into the past of it's of course a kind of memory it involves memories but when it's a grievance then what is the associated mental factor it's aversion hatred dislike so that's the state of mind rooted in hatred so hatred maybe it's even lust and hatred are too strong in this context maybe we can say desire and aversion okay so there are memories in the past besides grievances any other kinds of states regrets also that's good seems to be a complex phenomenon regret involving a certain admixture of both desire and aversion since there's a sense of displeasure or dislike because something didn't work out the way one wanted it to and the desire and that one would want you know the course of events to change so that it will work to one's satisfaction and so I think in regret one can see both factors at work anything else resentment so that is quite similar to grievances but perhaps has a different quality to it excuse me doubt I don't think doubt will apply so much to something in the past. Yeah, that is a good example. Repentance would be a state, the state of mind that arises with repentance would tend to be one with aversion, I would say it depends on the quality of the repentance if it's something that one's done demanding oneself and sort of tormenting oneself over past actions then it's an unwholesome state of repentance a state that's connected with aversion. States that are connected with both desire and aversion and in the future so far I've only mentioned examples of states which will be connected with desire but in regard to the future 
Can there also be states connected with aversion? What would be some examples of that? Ah, that's a good example, yeah. Yeah, a state of... I guess first it would begin as a desire to get vengeance. Also, that seems to be a complex state, also involving elements of both. But to say the desire for vengeance will arise from some resentment against something that's taken place in the past and which is projecting into the future something that one wants to get. So I'd, anyway, I'd say that sort of fantasies or imaginings of vengeance or plannings of vengeance are rooted, firmly rooted in aversion. Or also an element of desire comes in and wishing to get revenge <laughs> for wrongs done to oneself. Any other kinds of future projective states rooted in aversion? Exactly, fear. It's something one doesn't want to happen, but one imagines that it will happen. Or one is apprehensive that it might happen. Okay. Role-playing, role-playing, something to imagine. It would be role-playing what you call. Role-playing. <laughs> I don't quite I see that almost as a psychotic <laughs> but these are kinds of states that would come up in the course of somebody who's just observing his mind and, and sitting in meditation <laughs> okay so anyway we've covered numbers of states that are rooted in desire and aversion, applying both to the past and to the future. Now this is the important thing about the practice of mindfulness. When there is mindfulness of a state of mind, the mindfulness is a wholesome factor it's a wholesome quality and that mindfulness cannot exist at the same time as a defiled state because a state of mind with mindfulness is a wholesome state a state of mind with a defilement is an unwholesome state so whenever the mind is getting carried away by chains of thoughts which are rooted in the defilement, on that occasion, mindfulness is absent. And when one suddenly becomes aware that the state, that the mind is drifting, and one turns the attention onto the state of mind to observe the mind, then that defilement is not present in the mind. 
But what happens when one is observing, say, a mind with desire, a mind with aversion, is that the desire or aversion which had just been active before mindfulness arose has a certain kind of force connected to it. And when the mindfulness turns onto the mind, the actual defilement disappears, but its power or force is still, to say, impinging on the consciousness. And so it seems that one is observing a state of mind with that state, with that unwholesome state. But if one really examines the mind very, very precisely, one sees that while one is noting the mind or looking at the mind, then the mind is clear. But it might be sometimes also when the defilement is very strong that there'll be a quickly, a rapidly alternating succession of sequences of consciousness, sometimes with the unwholesome state, with the defilement, sometimes with mindfulness. For example, say one is sitting and then observing the breath, then the memory of some abuse which somebody spoke against you comes into the mind. You remember those abusive words, then anger comes up. Then after the mind has dwelt a few occasions on those angry thoughts, then you become aware, mind with anger, mind with anger. Then you're observing. But then that anger is so strong, has such force, that for a few moments the anger comes back and takes control. Then you again arouse the mindfulness and you're watching the mind and there's still the vibration of the anger. Then the anger comes back, the mindfulness drifts away. For a few moments, then you bring the mindfulness back, bring the mindfulness back, till one is just watching the mind, watching, watching, and then the force of the anger gradually dissipates until the mind becomes clear. And the mindfulness gets the upper hand of the anger, over the anger. Okay, so when one does that, by observing or noting the mind until the defilement or the unwholesome state of mind drops away, then one will be noting the state of mind without hatred, without hatred. If there's been that desire in the mind and one observes the desire, Till the desire fades away, then one will be seeing the clear mind and noting mind without desire, mind without desire.
Okay, so these are examples of different ways the state of mind might be noted when one is using as one's primary object some physical object of attention like the breath or the abdomen and when the mind drifts one wants to identify what kind of state has arisen one can identify it in that way sometimes it's not even necessary to relate it to the structure that the Buddha describes here like some teachers like Venerable Mahasi Sayadaw teach that one should just identify the nature of the state of mind like planning, planning, hoping, hoping, fearing, fearing, remembering, remembering in that way. Okay, the second way now in which the contemplation of consciousness can be taken up and that is as a primary object itself this shouldn't be done except in rare cases at the beginning at the beginning of one's practice it's always best to begin with a material object which is easy to note but after one gains some experience with that and one gains some power of concentration then one can make the mind itself the primary object of attention one just turns the attention upon the state of mind just watching whatever state of mind arises in this case one will be following the instructions that come in the second part of this section on contemplation of consciousness thus he lived contemplating consciousness in consciousness internally That is, one is focusing upon one's own state of consciousness and as one does this, it becomes more and more difficult except under special conditions to use mental labels to identify the state of consciousness because the mind observing the consciousness and the mind being observed seem to get very, very so close together that they almost coincide. There's almost the slightest, there's the smallest gap that seems to be separating the one from the other. And so just whenever one is aware of the mind, there will be a mind with awareness, with mindfulness except from time to time the mind will drift away from the awareness of itself then the uh, 
the unwholesome states will arise and then they have to be identified. Or sometimes when one is observing the mind, then it will seem that just streams of thoughts start to arise in very, very rapid succession. But that's anticipating Ramidoka. Okay, so he lived contemplating consciousness and consciousness internally, that is, within oneself. Or he lives contemplating consciousness and consciousness externally. As I explained earlier in connection with the other passages, it's not really possible unless one has the special ability to read the minds of others that one can really contemplate the minds of others externally. But what this means is sometimes when one is contemplating one's own mind, the thought or idea might arise that others also have such states of mind. That these states do not arise only in myself, but in others as well. In that case, one is contemplating consciousness and the consciousness externally. Or else, he lives contemplating consciousness and consciousness internally and externally. This refers to the case where one might be going back and forth in succession from one's own mind, consider contemplating the states in one's own mind for a few moments, then considering that such states arise in the minds of others, then coming back to one's own mind, then to the minds of others, and so on, to get a rounded picture of the functioning of consciousness. Okay, now we come to the passage. He lives contemplating origination factors in consciousness, or he lives contemplating dissolution factors in consciousness, or he lives contemplating origination and dissolution factors in consciousness. That is, as one goes on contemplating the state of mind, observing the mind, then one sees in quite rapid succession states of mind arising and passing away. Even what seems to be initially a somewhat stable, persisting state of mind, as one goes observing it very closely, one sees it's really a sequence of very, very brief leading states of mind just arising and passing away, arising and passing away. And sometimes as one contemplates this sequence of consciousness, the origination of states will be more manifest. One sees the arising of one state in succession to others. Sometimes one sees the dissolution, the passing away of states. 
sometimes one sees both the arising and passing away. Or else, this is after the contemplation of mind becomes very well established. The mindfulness is established simply with the thoughts or with the intention. Consciousness exists. It is here when it's not bothering to identify what kind of state of consciousness it is. One is not attending to the arising or the passing, but one is just aware that there is consciousness, that there is this sequence or flow of pieces occurring. To the ex- only to the extent necessary for knowledge and mindfulness, and he lives detached and clings to nothing in the world. Thus monks, a monk lives contemplating consciousness in consciousness. Okay, so that will be our explanation of this. If there are any questions, then please feel free to ask them. Okay, if there are no questions, then we will continue again next Thursday.
Okay, it's just that I'm concerned when Mosi Lal and Nasi Das, how quickly they will want the index fast. But I think it will still take them some time to print out the next form. Not yet. I think when those last forms come, then work on it full time. But then we have to get the index back to them.